Hi folks, it's Dr. Christine Sauer here with Sparkles for Better Mental Health. And today I'm very excited to have Kimberly Dakin or Dakin. How is it pronounced, Kimberly? Thanks for asking. It's Dakin. Yeah. Dakin <laughs> at my show. And uh, Kim uh, Dakin Neal has been working a working creative for a few decades now. She's narrated over 30 audiobooks and won a national award for her narration of Runaway by Alice Munro. She has been working with the standardized patient program at Maine Med for over a decade and recently began doing similar work with the Kaiser Permanente system, training medical professionals in more productive listening and patient communication. So important. <laughs> uh, you, you've done many more things. Uh, Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, I'm curious, and I always ask all my guests the same thing. How did you get to be passionate about the work you're doing today? What's your story? Oh, that's a beautiful question. How did you get to be passionate about the work you're doing? Um, for me, I have a performing arts background. And it's always been a challenge uh, that I've bumped up against uh, probably in the majority of my adult life, how to make an art form feel like it's useful instead of simply an entertainment. Um, and I ran a company for a while that would do trainings on problematic behaviors. We had uh, sexual harassment is, training is mandatory in a lot of businesses. So we had, we had quite a lot of work doing that. Um, and we would, uh, it was largely improvisational. So we used a lot of improvisation techniques. And early on, I remember when I was uh, working in a residential theater, I read an article in the New Yorker magazine about how physicians uh, and people who are running hospital practices uh, were starting to understand that they were churning out doctors who were full of data and knowledge and information and had absolutely no clue how to engage and interact productively with patients. Mm -hmm. So about the time that I discovered that article, I also discovered the standardized patient program. So the essence of that for people who are listening and don't know what that is, it's essentially a hands-on experiential training program for medical practitioners, uh, people who are going through medical school in how to partner with patients, how to interview patients so that you get the information you need, so that you develop trust quickly, so that you can get them to give you their authentic experience of whatever's going wrong. Um, this is a very different, this is a big paradigm shift from at least the way uh, medical training has been implemented for decades upon centuries. Uh, 
you know, the doctor is God and nobody questions him. And, and for this to be put into the mix has been a big paradigm shift. Uh, and, and you can see the difference in, uh, in the generations. People who were trained in a star system where doctor is God really struggle in standardized patient encounters because they, they feel like the criteria has completely shifted. So those are really interesting conversations to have. Those are very interesting experiential training sessions. And this is certainly very important because as a doctor myself and as a patient, I know it from both sides. And yes. I was trained in Germany in the, in the 80s. So it's a long time ago. And the training then was different in Europe than it is still nowadays in North America, interestingly. And we learned more about how to listen to our patients and collaborate with them than I experienced in the North American system. So I think what you are offering was very, very needed and still is because I've still experienced doctors that think they're God. And come on, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I, I mean, it is pretty ridiculous. Just because you know something does not mean that this aligns with what somebody else needs. That's exactly right. Um, so let the, me ask. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'll just add this. Um, Oftentimes, as a standardized patient myself, I train others to become to become standardized patients, but I also do it myself. And we'll be in day-long training sessions where we see multiple practitioners. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll be trained in a particular case, such like back pain or something. And uh, we'll see multiple practitioners. Uh, and it, the range of diagnoses is pretty startling um and so questioning the patient becomes really important so that you can make an accurate unbiased diagnosis absolutely and i i i i beg to say there's never a total accurate unbiased diagnosis a good practitioner always questions his own or her own judgment because we all make mistakes, don't we? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and doctors are no exception and coaches are no exception. And that's where risk comes in. And I know you, you talk about, about risks. What, are, what do risks mean to you in the context of our life? Well, I, I, I'm coming to understand that I have been a person who has both been terrified of taking risks, but has also been able to take what people will look at as enormous risks in certain areas. So I think the whole idea, the whole concept of, of risk-taking is, is really interesting. Um, one of the lessons that the COVID-19 uh, shutdown taught us, I think, is the limits of our own ability to take risks. Mm -hmm. I noticed, you know, my, my husband and I, uh, 
all of our outside activities were shut down like everybody else in the world. And suddenly we are each other's company. And it was a lesson in how much risk we were able to tolerate just as individuals. Um, and I started to realize my level of risk tolerance is much greater, particularly with physical things than is his. But he has heart issues. So of course his, is, his will be lower and it should be lower. But at the same time, when it comes to um, just going to the grocery store, I, I had no problem wearing a mask, but he would like then get back to the car and, and wipe everything down with hand sanitizer. You know, and after a while, it's just kind of like, I know I don't feel like I need to take a bath in hand sanitizer now. Let's just get home. But how many times I felt like I need to get out the door, I need to go out and do something, even if it's just take a hike someplace. Um, I, the feeling of being cooped up was something that I really had trouble with, more so than did he. But I think no. as, as, mm -hmm. yeah, as a culture, we are, we are really finding our levels of risk. There are so, so many people who just want to get back to pre-COVID normal. And I think the lesson that we're all learning is that we can't. We have to find a way to move on. Isn't life inherently risky? That's right. Yes, that's right. That's right. And I mean, what's the end result of living? Isn't it death? Exactly. So what's the risk here? The risk. Exactly. And I love my husband. He always says, well, look around you. Plants die, animals, we die. Big deal. So why are people so afraid of taking risks if it means they might get closer to death? Even if that's not the case, but if they think it is. There is a wonderful book out now called The Upside of Uncertainty. Mm. It's, I believe the authors are Nate, Nathan, and Susanna Furr, F-U-R-R. Uh, and they're really grappling with, with our relationship to uncertainty, which in my mind then translates to our ability to take risks. As animals, we are trying to avoid uncertainty, the unknown. We're trying to make ourselves and our children and our families and our communities safe. But if we are too controlling in our efforts, if we eliminate uncertainty from our lives, then we end up with what's going on now. People are quitting their jobs. People are, are staying out of the workforce because they want meaning. They, are, they don't want to, a, a safe nine to five sort of situation we need some uncertainty in our life to give us energy and to help us grow there there really isn't i don't think there's a potential for growth without taking a risk of some kind i like that that is very very true there is no potential of growth without taking a certain risk yeah. because in a way 
what I think is staying completely safe is dying while you're still alive. Yes, yes. And that's not a life that is worth living in my books. You can coop yourself in a room, but you still take risks because you have to eat, you have to drink. That's right. That's right. That's right. Just even just walking around the block. Um, Yeah. There's always a risk to life. So the question is how much risk are you willing to tolerate for yourself? And I know you did some work on thoughtful risks. What is a thoughtful risk in your opinion? Uh, In my mind, a thoughtful risk is, first of all, one where you take your time in deciding to take it. Um, I have discovered in myself a certain allergy to ambiguity. I don't like being indecisive. I don't like sitting in the soup of indecision. And oftentimes I have made bad choices and bad decisions just to get away from that place. And so now I'm encouraging myself to take thoughtful risks. When back during the pandemic, there were two, actually there were three risks I decided to take um, because my in-person work had all evaporated, uh, which was 80% of my income. And um, I was trying to look for the silver lining and the silver lining was time. So I had to take a risk on a program out of Seth Godin's um, website, his business called Writing in Community. Uh, The notion being that if you put in 15 minutes of writing every day at a minimum, at the end of six months, you'll you'll have at least an ebook that you can put on Amazon and sell. So I had always wanted to write a book. I had no idea what about but I knew I wanted to write a book. So I paid my $200 and signed up. Um, And within three months of that, I got an opportunity uh, through a nonprofit here to take a class for women in creating and selling original online products. That intrigued me. So I signed up for that. So there are two risks they are being taken, just in terms of my time, energy, and focus. And I know for myself, I am guilty of having way too many plates in the air. So my own challenge is to sit in the ambiguity before making the choices. And so before making the choice for this online program, I ran it past my girlfriends. And I divided my girlfriends into two camps, the cheerleader girlfriends who are gung-ho about everything I want to do. And then the curmudgeon girlfriends who kick the tires, do the math, and they look under the hood. Um, and with, the, with one exception, everybody was on board for me doing this. So I decided to go ahead. Uh, and the, um, the instructor, was a guy, young guy, 30-something guy, who uh, teaches a course out of a college here 
on entrepreneurial development. And the reason he put the course for women is because he noticed that there were no women in his classes or the ones that did show up, they sat in the back and they quit after the third session. So he was like, what do I have to do to make this better? So he co-created this class for women. And after the first round, I had not exactly, I knew generally what the problem was I wanted to focus on, which was online meetings and the lack of engagement and the, uh, the enormous distraction we were all feeling from you know kids running in and out and pets jumping out the keyboard, <laughs> husbands coming in at the wrong time, whatever. Um, and he talked me into doing it in the second round because he said, of all the problems that came up that people were focusing on in the first round, I liked yours the best. I have money to put behind this. I have grant money and I would like to help you come up with an actual product. Oh. I was like, wow, okay. So eventually that turned into a tool to uh, take notes uh, and highlight the important parts of a transcript. Uh, called Nugget, specially designed for online meetings. And um, we were able to sell it uh, in the later part of last year, December of last year. So that was pretty cool. And that, that was a risk that, that paid me back in terms of some time and effort that we had put into it. Um, because for me, the risk is, oh, this is just gonna be an, another interesting, shiny project that eats my time, energy, and focus, and doesn't give me anything back. Mm -hmm. uh, but because I had run this past, because I had been thoughtful in taking that risk, um, I was able to reap some benefit. That's sort of a long way of answering your question. No, that's okay. So I'm curious, you talked about writing a book. Did you finish a book? Well, I am within 2,000 words of finishing my book. It's taken me a bit of time, but I'm okay with that um, because at the end of my six-month period, I had what I considered a, a solid ebook on listening styles, mm -hmm. head, hand, and heart listening, otherwise known in some circles as whole body listening. Um, and I figured I was done with it. Well, I submitted it to a publisher. And after uh, she helped me with six different book proposals, <laughs> my book got accepted by the publisher. But the criteria was that I had to make it three times as long. Okay. <laughs> yeah, That's right? A challenge. <laughs> There's a challenge. So that was another risk. It's like, yikes, I thought I was done with this. But in the back of my mind, I was also, huh, I wonder how, I wonder how much I can find out if I really take the time to drill in, drill down into each of these things and come up with interesting new ways to utilize them. The publisher is Routledge. And their, uh, their target market is coaches and counselors. Okay. So they want books and ideas that can be utilized hands-on by people who are practic 
practitioners in these uh, fields. So, um, so what will yeah. be the title of the book? The title is The Listening Coach Using the Head, Hands, and Heart, Using the Head, Hands, and Heart Model in Coach Practice. So. Sounds like a real good book. Yes. So well. something to watch out for if you listen or watch this show. And what do you expect will be the published date? Uh, probably early 2023 at this point. Okay. Um, I want to meet my October 1st deadline, and I think I'll be able to do it. That's exciting. Uh, but I've also signed on for another thoughtful risk, which is the option of creating my own index, which I have never done before. But I either have to do it myself or I have to pay somebody to do it. What do you mean by that, your own index? It, you know, you get to the end of a book yeah. and they have an index of topics and where oh, yeah. to find, right? Oh, so a table of content? Yeah. The table of contents is in the front. The index is usually in the back. Oh, the, if you want to look up more precisely yeah. a particular topic, mm. say confirmation bias. Confirmation I see, yeah. bias is something that I tackle. Um, yeah, those are quite helpful. Yes, they are. So anyway, I decided to do that, but I got a book. <laughs> the, in, the book indexing for authors book. To help me, because I'm I'm feeling overwhelmed by the whole notion of having to do something this detailed. All right. So, through all those risk taking, would you say you developed a risk muscle? Oh yes, I love that. Yes, indeed, definitely a risk muscle. Um, it's like with anything else. I'm sure many of your listeners have had certain risks that they um, had to gear up for. Perhaps they had to learn more about a topic. Uh, perhaps they had to get over a certain amount of fear. Or perhaps they had to get over a certain amount of complacency um, in order to accomplish something, yet they did. And it was a success. I think each of these successes builds a certain risk muscle, but so do risk failures. Mm -hmm. Talk about tend, that. Yeah, we tend to be allergic to failure. We want to avoid failure. And yet, failure is how we learn. Failure is how we grow. Um, it might be painful, but I think that in my own life, I think that's really true. Um, seven years ago or so, I was working as a uh, corporate trainer and I became intrigued with the book called Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. And I started getting requests to do workshops. I'm a, I'm a, a good presenter. I do a lot of coaching of public speaking and that sort of thing. And I would get requests to do workshops, but I wanted a tool that I could utilize to bring the concepts to life within small groups. So I developed a card game called Shift POV. 
um, to take small groups through a decision. Um, there would be people who were promoting a certain dis decision. There were people who were resistant to that decision. There were people who were on the, the fence. So there'd be timed rounds of discussion that were led by a facilitator. And in between the rounds, there would be a deck of cards called the random factors. Random factors are insight prompts. Some of them are actions, some of them are observations, some of them are questions that you have 60 seconds to engage. You don't know what's gonna be in that pile for you to do, but as a player in the game, you are asked to do it, whatever it is for 60 seconds. Maybe it's um, to sing your favorite song, Standing in a Corner. Maybe it's to turn everything that you can in the room upside down. I mean, there, I had so much fun coming up with these. I can imagine. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. So I thought when I took this online product that I could turn Shift POV into an online product. It turns out that that was not the problem I should be focusing on. Mm -hmm. um, I sold enough actual card decks to make back the money that I had spent to producing it. But as it turns out for that particular time and place, I was focused on the wrong problem. So that taught me a lot in terms of paying attention to the criteria in this course in getting women to create online products. I spent a lot of time making sure that we dug down into whatever it was about online meetings that was so uncomfortable. What is it that we can actually do something about? And it turns out that when people, I know for myself, maybe you can relate, maybe your listeners can relate. When you have to take notes in online meetings, particularly when you're a facilitator. You um, can let the recording do it for you and you'll have this great big hefty transcript you have to sort through, tease out all the good stuff at the end. Or you can make yourself write down notes and try to revisit them afterwards. Um, I don't know about you, but my handwriting is pretty atrocious. Plus I've had to disengage from the actual conversation. So we decided that note-taking was the thing we were gonna focus on. And once we got that, things really started to take off. So Yeah, you talked about that nugget thing. The nugget thing. <laughs> the golden nuggets in a conversation. That is true. And every conversation has those little golden nuggets that you don't That's want right. to... Uh, miss and uh, I really love that you say that but you're also working as a coach still is that right yes what are you doing um, as a coach my uh, a friend of mine who does coaching in New York City um, she is perhaps my one of my oldest and dearest friends she talked me into doing a six-week introductory course uh, with her on the positive intelligence mindset training. Uh, I loved it so much that I went on and am now uh, pursuing certification and I'm leading my own coach clients through the uh, six week 
training course, the six week basic training, I guess you could call it. Um, and people are really enjoying it immensely. I think what I love about mindset coaching is that it's not a matter of getting back into your past and your childhood and everything else. It's a, it's a very relatable model. There are nine different saboteurs that are impeding our pro progress at any given juncture. The saboteurs are um, actually based on strengths that we have. For example, my primary saboteur is restless. Um, thus all the plates in the air and shiny bells and whistles and squirrel and whatever. Um, the strength at the heart of that is a lot of creativity, a lot of flexibility, a certain comfort with risk taking. Um, other people have other saboteurs that are primary for them, like controller, wants to stay safe, wants everything to be managed. The stickler is a perfectionist. Um, the pleaser, which almost every woman has the pleaser in perhaps the top three or four of their saboteurs, myself included. Um, hyper-rational, doesn't want to get into any sort of emotion. There's all of these, these um, really interesting sort of character profiles of saboteurs that most people find incredibly relatable. And then there are the five sage qualities. And the whole point is to build your sage muscle, which is empathy, uh, curiosity, innovation, navigation, and action to build your sage muscle so that you can lower the amount of saboteur influence and raise the amount of your sage influence. Um, Shirzat Shami put this together. It was so successful for Fortune 500 companies that he won a uh, series of grants so that he could take other coaches through the program and spread the benefits of mindset coaching all over the planet. So that's his mission and that's how he's decided to undertake it. Wow, that is really amazing. So if somebody is listening or watching this and they say, hey, I like this Kimberly, it makes a lot of sense what she's saying. How, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, my website, which would be kimdakin.com. That's K-Y-M-D-A-K-I-N.com. And I'll make sure to put that underneath the video and in the show notes in the podcast. That's right. Great. Yeah. Now, at, to, to wrap this up, what is one thing you would like to leave the listeners and watchers with? Um, I would love to leave your listeners with the reminder that any progress you make starts with self-compassion. Having empathy for yourself and knowing that the essence of who you are, what we know in Mindset Coaching as the sage qualities of who you are, is still inside you, no matter what you've gone through, no matter 
where you may find yourself now, no matter how old you are, that essence of that perfect child is still inside of you. Wow, that is wonderful. Thank you so much, Kimberly. This was Thank you so wonderful. Much, Dr. Christine. This was delightful. Now, this is the end of the show of Sparkles for Better Mental Health. Make sure to tune in for the next episode. Thank you. <laughs>